welcome to Through the Undertow. I'm your host, Nicole Lowell. This week's episode is all things dissociation. So come join us as we wade through the undertow. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, we provide trigger and content warnings for each episode on our website. That can be found at www.throughtheundertow.com. That's www.throughthrutheundertow.com. See the latest episodes on our homepage or click on the episode link for a more comprehensive list. Also, please note that nothing that is said in any of our episodes should be taken as any type of diagnosing. We are here for informational and educational purposes only. Today, we have with us Dr. Christian Vincent, an amazing doctor of depth psychology, and she is specialized in dissociation disorders, in particular DID. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Vincent. Hi, and thank you for having me, and you're very welcome. Thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, we actually were just speaking about it, but for our audience members, can you tell us a little bit about what depth psychology is? Sure. So depth psychology is really based in the Jungian tradition of analytical psychology and but I really like to think about it as, you know, exploring the psychology of our unconscious contents. So depth psychology comes along with like researching archetypes and projections and complexes. And if anyone's familiar with Carl Jung, they will have some understanding that he was one of the forefathers in, in terms of researching dissociation. He also, uh, Pierre Genet, who also really started to, like back in, I believe, the 1800s, like long time ago, really started to explore what he was seeing as people, particularly women, going into hysteria, but actually seeing that they were dissociating and having different parts come out and having no understanding of what that was at that time back in you know back in those days and so it's come a long long way and one thing i particularly love about depth psychology and applying it to working with clients who have did is that it allows for so many different parts of the psyche to be revealed and unfold and explored and so that's where i love the tradition of depth psychology but also really applying it to did because Carl Jung looked at the psyche as having many different sides. And so there is kind of the normal dissociative tendencies that we all have, which are very kind of healthy to be able to have. And then, of course, it runs on on a spectrum and gets, you know, to the point where we see something like dissociative disorders, kind of in the not necessarily specified area. And then we have the full on extent of a dissociative identity disorder. Sure. So can you give us an example of a normal dissociation? What is like neurotypical dissociation? So driving in our car, right? We, we get in the car, we start the car, and next thing we know, we're home, right? And we are like, I don't even remember getting here. It's, it's autopilot, right? Sure. Or, or daydreaming. You know, we all kind of go off in little daydreams in our into fantasies or thinking about, you know, where we'd like to be anywhere but here, right? Like, instead, instead of, yes, instead of sitting at the desk at work, it's like, oh, it'd be great to just be on the beach or something and really kind of go off into that fantasy or, or that. And it is a form of dissociation. We are literally disassociated from the present moment that we're in. So absolutely. Yeah. So that's very, very common. You can talk to, you know, many people who are like, oh, I, yeah, I drove home or I got to the grocery store and I 
have no recollection of getting there, but I know I obviously drove myself there. So driving is a very common time for people to dissociate. Okay. So now I would say that at least to a certain degree, dissociation is a little bit of a coping mechanism for a lot of us. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Our brains are designed, right, to be able to dissociate. And, And again, it can be from when we're just kind of bored, right? And want to be entertained in some way. And that's what we can go off into fantasy. And that's much more enjoyable to go into that place of the mind. And then, of course, dissociation is a coping mechanism for trauma of all sorts. So when we talk about the, you know, car accidents or people, they don't necessarily remember the, the actual accidents or they get flashes of it. You know, our brain is designed to be able to cope with trauma and dissociation really helps with being able to cope with that. However, when we're talking about complex chronic trauma that starts in very early childhood and, you know, is just a a chronic condition that we go through, then our brains aren't necessarily designed to cope with that and on a long-term chronic uh, experience. That's where we get into more dissociative disorders, you know, and then again, all the way to the far end of, of DID. Sure, sure. So there's three dissociative disorders aside from DID, is that correct? Yes. So when talking about DID, we also have to look at depersonalization and derealization disorder. Mm -hmm. And which ones were you thinking of? So I was looking at dissociative amnesia, and then there's a a dissociative fugue. Is Is that correct too? Is that almost like a brain fog type thing? Not quite an amnesia? Is that? So dissociative fugue is very interesting in the sense that uh, someone can experience a traumatic event and literally move to a new state or and, and go develop a whole new identity. And say a family member is like, where did my husband go? Or where did someone go? And if they can track them down, And they realized that this person's brain, whatever the trauma was that they could not cope with, they went into a fugue state and literally moved away, having completely separated from their original identity and creating a new one to cope with the trauma. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. So that's that's sort of almost a hardcore DID, like hardcore, only one potential alter that you like hold on to and become and adjust everything else around that? It's certainly a form of a a dissociative identity, yes. However, they can be brought back to their original personality, but that can be posed with some challenges, of course. Obviously, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. You were talking about depersonalization disorder, is that right? Yes. And what is that? So depersonalization is when you don't feel like you are a real person. And derealization is when you don't think that anything around you is actually real. You don't think that you are as a person are real and you don't think the world around you is real. And those are common traits for DID or or really any dissociative disorder or PTSD even that you can find those as symptoms of those disorders. So when people have trauma and then afterwards they're like, it was so surreal, that could be a milder form potentially of that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Depersonalization, derealization are also coping mechanisms because the brain is trying to protect yourself from recognizing or, or realizing that the trauma that you went through was real, you know, that, that it actually happened to you as a person. Yeah. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. 
I want to wait and get into DID a little bit more sure. in just a moment. But what I'd like to ask is for the other disorders, for the other dissociative disorders, obviously they all present with different challenges, but what treatment methods are there? What can people who might be faced with that anticipate in terms of their healing journey? So if you're kind of working with someone who obviously has been through some sort of trauma um, or maybe multiple traumas, but later in life, we're not necessarily looking at the early onset of, of something mm-hmm. like DID, which is, you know, and we will get into this, but that is a developmental disorder. DID occurs in childhood. So something like a dissociative fuge or dissociative amnesia so is, is going to be the result of a traumatic event that occurred, whether it was, you know, say a, a like a natural disaster or, you know, like again, a, a car accident is a good example or medical trauma or something along those lines. It's scary for people to want to go back and revisit the trauma. And the wonderful thing now, I think, is that we have so many different therapies of how to process. And it's not just talking about it again and rehashing it, which can be very traumatizing for people to just... Absolutely. So therapies such as like EMDR or brain spotting, which is something that I'm trained in and I use with many, many clients of mine as you know, ways to process a traumatic event without necessarily even having to verbalize or, or talk through it again and relive it again, but it's still having a very deep process so that you can get to the other side of it. Great. I definitely think that most people who are not really into going to therapy haven't watched that industry in a long, long time. Like all that they're aware of is I have to go and sit and talk. And there's definitely, definitely been progress there of all the different types of therapies that are available to different people for healing. Absolutely. Yes. And, and that is one of the reasons I, I'm so appreciative that I get to have this conversation with you today is to put that information out there because we've come a long way, right? But there's still a lot of missing information. I don't want to say misinformation, but a lot of information that hasn't really been put out there on a level where, you know, the, the masses get to receive it. Right. And th- there is Absolutely. still a, you know, people do shy away from therapy and, you know, because they maybe hear about bad experiences or have had past bad experiences of their own. And so they're like, I'm never doing that again. That was awful. You know, there was nothing right. feeling about that. And I hear those stories time and time again, where someone went to therapy and just had a terrible experience, whether it was just a bad fit, you know, with a therapist or something, you know, and they're just like, I don't, why would anyone want to subject themselves to this? And I'm right. (laughs) And that's definitely one thing that I would say that I'll repeat over and over and over again. Like when it comes to therapy, it's such a personal thing that you have to fit with whoever your therapist is. It does not matter. I think you have to look at the level of training versus what you're trying to accomplish in terms of your trauma. But I also think you have to look at the personal fit that you have with that person because they could be the most trained person in the world. And if you're not feeling it, you're not going to get enough out of it to heal right. You're, you're just not. I definitely think that If you have to hunt and if your only answer is, I don't have a connection with you, that's an acceptable answer to leave therapy. And I don't think that people always recognize that. I think sometimes they get into a situation where maybe they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable and they don't necessarily know why. And it's like, well, but I have to go. 
And it's almost like this feeling of it's not going to feel good. So I have to keep going. If, if it like, it must be okay if it's not feeling good. And I would actually say that's probably the exact opposite of the reality. You should feel good when you come out of a therapy session. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. When you go to the gym, it's not easy, but you shouldn't walk out of the gym in pain. That's not a good thing. You should walk out of the gym feeling good and feeling like you worked out and like you really challenged yourself, but it, they're not quite the same. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I, and I, I do think that people find themselves kind of locked into that commitment and thinking they have to keep going. And I will be the first one to say, like, if, if I feel like we're not connecting, I'm going to say this is in the room. Like, if maybe this is just because we are not going to connect or maybe we can talk through this and figure out what's missing here so that we can bring that in, bring that piece into the relationship. So much of therapy working is about the relationship. It is very relational. And if you don't feel like you are in that attuned relationship with your therapist or vice versa. If the therapist is like, you know what, I'm, I don't know if I'm the right person to help this client. Like we have to hold ourselves accountable. Um, Absolutely. You know, and not just wait for the client to say, Hey, this isn't working. And then look, I've through my years, I've done both right. In my early years, I've had the feeling, but didn't know how to bring it into the room. And, you know, that comes with training and experience. And it, it, yes, it mostly comes with experience, I would say. And, and really identifying that feeling of like, hey, am I the right person to help this client? Or would they be better suited to another therapist? And, you know, it's our responsibility to make those referrals if we, if we feel like, hey, they, they would be, get so much more benefit out of working with this other colleague of mine or something along those lines. Absolutely. The one thing that I think is true of all therapy is that you're putting yourself in a completely vulnerable position. You as the person who went through the trauma, who's trying to heal, you're essentially bearing your soul to this person. So if that's a person that for any reason, for whatever reason at all, you don't feel like you can trust or completely share whatever it is that you need to share then that's going to be a problem. If not in the beginning, then definitely later on. And so to me, it's like you have to be able to speak up and say anything to either work through those feelings that you're having or to, like you said, can you refer me to someone else? I just don't feel like I'm going to be able to share with you everything that I need to share with you. And I think the other thing that I would say is that therapists are trained to not take anything personally. <laughs> and so even though the people here, I mean, obviously they're humans and that can certainly happen. But I think for the most part, when somebody says to a therapist, I just need to go to someone else. I don't think you guys take that personally. Am I correct in that? I think it's both. And I think that also comes with experience and, mm -hmm. you know, with, with time to know that it's not about us. You know, it's about the client getting to whoever they need to, to get to, to get the help that they need. So it's it, taking it personally and thinking, oh, I, I'm such a bad therapist or how can I should be able to help everyone. Like that's, first of all, completely unrealistic, <laughs> you know, sure. to think that we should be able to help every person or that every client that comes to us is going to, we're going to be the perfect fit for them. That's not true. Like of any relationship, you know, you're not going to be able to date or marry anyone, right? It's, it has to be a good fit. And then that is all in the relationship and feeling that trust and that vulnerability and feeling safe to be completely vulnerable and share anything and know that who that therapist is, is going to be able to receive that and hold that and help you process and work through whatever the, the, the content is. 
in regards to that now, when you're seeking a therapist and you believe that you have a dissociative disorder, is there particular training that we need to look for that we as the people looking for therapy need, you know, are there questions that we need to ask or particular training that you guys would have gone through that would make sure that we're picking at least in the right area of who we would need to help with these particular challenges? Yes. And that's a, such a great question because I think it particularly when a, you know, someone who either suspects or knows that they are experiencing some sort of dissociative disorder, they will definitely want to find a therapist who has training in that. There's a lot of different approaches now to the work. I mean, I personally was trained by a therapist who specialized in, you know, in DID. And I was very lucky in that way. Most people, I think, go through different types of, whether it be internal family systems training or uh, comprehensive resource model training. Okay. Or, or, and the another really great resource of finding therapists who are specialized in treating dissociative disorders is the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. So the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Yes, it's a mouthful. Okay. <laughs> and they have a website, don't they? I believe I've actually been to their website. Okay, I'll definitely add that to our web page. So if y'all are considering that you need to have a therapist who is trained in dissociative disorders, we're going to put this particular website, a link in our episode page. So you can go and look that up and see if you can find somebody who has the proper training to make sure that you're finding the help that you need. Yes. And the, the great thing about, you know, the ISS uh, TD organization is that they have many different levels of training for therapists who do want to go that route. And so they offer different courses and, and you know, different levels of training for all that. And then I believe there is a database or a resource list on there for therapists and where they're located. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I would like to say One of the struggles, unfortunately, that people are going to come up with, and I'll have to figure out how to do an episode on this. There's definitely a little bit of a disconnect right now between finding the therapist that's trained properly, who accepts your insurance, who can meet with you based on whatever's going on with you. So I think that we'll definitely have to do an episode on insurance versus whatever coming up. We'll have to do an episode on how can you get your needs met with the limitations that are in our society today. I have found, unfortunately, that a lot of people that are specialty trained in the psych industry, mental health industry, don't want to mess with insurance. And rightfully so. It becomes a really difficult process for them. And There is enough clients for them that are willing to do private pay that can sometimes, you know, that makes the difference for them. So I think that everybody needs to just be aware that when you're looking for those therapists, making sure that you find someone who's properly trained that also meets with your insurance. And the other thing that I would suggest, which again, we'll have a whole different episode about insurance, but there's a thing called a single case agreement that you can look at with people who are not in your insurance network. So we'll get into that on another episode. I just want to throw that out there though, especially if y'all are going to be going and looking once you've listened to this one. 
Back to Dr. Vincent. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about your personal experiences. Like you and I uh, met through my son who actually had some difficulties with his own dissociative identity disorder. But the thing that I really, really loved about you was not just your training, but where you came from. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, and absolutely. I am very unique in this way that I, I have yet to meet another clinician who came into wanting to treat DID the way that I have. So, and, and I do speak about this very freely in my thesis too. So anyone who is interested in, you know, reading further, I can, you know, you can find it online, but I was raised by a mom who has DID. And so I was probably around six or seven years old when she was diagnosed and then her therapist brought me into therapy and was able to really articulate and explain to, to my very you know childlike mind uh, what was going on with my mom so that I wouldn't be confused or afraid and not to say that there weren't times where I was confused or afraid because you know as a, as a child you you don't fully comprehend you know what's going on with mom when she's you know it, it's hard to uh, see that, where's the consistency and it's a lot of times especially in the early stages of her treatment she was very inconsistent with the I never knew what version of mom I was necessarily going to get but her therapist uh, just did such a wonderful job of really helping me understand why she was behaving this way or why she was you know maybe sleeping a lot of the time or why she would maybe be missing some of the time because, you know, uh, alters will come out and take over and get scared and not know what's going on and they can disappear for a few days at a time. And so I would have those experiences and, you know, wondering like, where's my mom? It's been three days and she's nowhere to be found. And so that's very confusing as a child, very scary. But, you know, as I learned more, understood, you know, oh, because initially she explained to me as like, your mom has amnesia. And she said, amnesia is basically when people forget you know, like forget things or big things. And so I was like, oh, okay, I can understand that. So I, you know, I was just kind of, oh, she's been gone for, maybe she forgot to come home or maybe, you know, that's, (laughs) and slowly started to kind of piece together things. And then of course, having my, my own therapy to kind of process the confusion or the, the, the fears, the concerns. And absolutely. Yeah. You know, so that was that end of it, but also, you know, just growing up with this mom who would sometimes be Susie who was a little girl, we'd play Barbies together. Or I would read her, Susie loves pop-up books. Like that's her jam. And so she, you know, I would read books to her. And and so here's my mom, you know, curled up next to me, really like a little girl. And so I, you know, fortunately had the understanding of like, oh, this is, she's Susie right now. You know, it's it's my mom, Mm -hmm. but it's also Susie. And or sometimes it was Patty, or sometimes it was Sharon, or, you know, there's you know, these different alters that I got to know very well, because I was living with them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then there's Stephanie, and there's these different, and she actually, when she first went to therapy, she had, I think, at least over 30 alters, it might have been higher. She had quite a few, her abuse began as an infant, her system had many, many parts. And, you know, through the work of therapy, they were able to integrate or, you know, the parts that needed, you know, just a little bit of work or needed to, you know, come together. So she got down to, I think, like four, four or five altars. And so that's my my personal experience of I I grew up with a mom who has DID 
you know, I, I think I was very fortunate in that I, she had a very wonderful therapist who helped, helped her and continues to help her for many years and was able to help me understand. And then it, of course, created this, you know, I, I feel like I was definitely put on the path of becoming a therapist. So yeah, and there's many other things that drew me to the vocation of therapy, but that was one of my, my starting points. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that people have to understand either if you have DID or if you know someone who has DID or you think you might have DID or you're just learning about it, that I feel like sometimes the way that TVs and movies portray it, first of all, is just so inaccurate. It's not, yeah, they have to get something across in 30 or 60 minutes or an hour and a half, whatever it is. So I think that recognizing that how somebody changes. First of all, let's, I'd like to go over a little bit of the terminology with you. Okay. So for a person who has other personalities that come forward, we call those other personalities alternates or alts or alters or things of that nature, correct? Yes. I like to use the client's language. Um, Or if they don't have any, then I, you know, I can, you know, we can help come up with language that works for their system. So, but but typically they'll talk about, you know, alts or alters or other parts. Okay. And you have to be mindful of certain words because certain words can be extremely triggering, such as alter can be very triggering to a client who has, you know, pretty severe uh, ritual abuse. Oh, something. Okay. That's, mm, that's very good to know. Yeah. So certain terminology that might work for somebody or that might be even more commonly used might be damaging or not a good choice for other people, depending on the nature of their trauma. Correct. And so that's why I like to like, what, what's a good word that, what do you guys like to use and work with them and figure, and again, every, every system is so, unique. And I also want to just make a quick comment about, I'm so glad that you said something about the way, the portrayal of DID in, in, in the media. And again, they have a small window of time to try and explain something very complex and the portrayals are really overdone. And it, so it's, it's frustrating as a clinician and as someone who lived with a, a you know, mom for many who had, it was like, that's not at all how it is or very, very skewed uh, version. So I thank you for saying that because people yes. have this idea from watching a movie or a TV show and it's like, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think honestly, one of the go-to things that I feel like that's shown is that alternate that comes forward. That's like violent. And it's like, first of all, not everybody has alternates that are violent. They just don't. And second of all, even if they are, violent, it's actually, you have to kind of like figure out what's going on with their system. This person's coming out. If you open your eyes and you didn't know where you were and you didn't know what was going on, you might have a bad, negative, aggressive, violent reaction too. If you, if you felt that your safety was threatened, like we don't know why they're behaving the way they're behaving until we learn their story. And until we learn essentially like the last thing that happened to them, which typically with an alternate who's stepping forward for the first time, the last thing or the first time in a long time, because we all know that they developed long ago. But if they're stepping forward for the first time in a long time, typically something really bad happened to them the last time they were out. That's how they were formed. Exactly. And I think that if people don't recognize that and understand that it can just be seen as bad behavior. 
when the reality is if you were getting beaten or sexually abused or, you know, something along those lines, severely neglected, your behavior would be impacted in that. Absolutely. You know, so, and that's where having a, whether it be a family member or a, you know, hopefully a clinician who is very informed on the matter is able to explore that with that part when they come out. If they come to in an office or somewhere that they, they have no idea what's going on. Like, and they're like, who are you? Like, what are you doing? Like, where am I? What is this? You know, and, and being, and knowing how to have that conversation uh, with that part is so vital. On the clinician's end, it's that ability to not react and know like, oh, the, this is a totally new part or, you know, we haven't met before and explaining that like, oh, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm Dr. I'm Dr. C. What's your name? It's nice. It's nice to meet you. I know this is very confusing. You know, like, look, how can I help? I want to explain some things to you. And, you know, going about it that way is so important. Absolutely. We had talked about specifically dissociative identity disorder as being a developmental disorder. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that and sort of the nature of how that's created. So just as a kind of a, a general example, if you have a, a four-year-old who, for the most part, has pretty normal day-to-day experiences, you know, gets up, has breakfast, goes to school, comes home, nothing out of the ordinary, but then dad has a severe problem with alcohol and, you know, most nights of the week comes home. And there's a few hours there where it's, there's a lot of violence, abuse, or, or even if that child is witnessing, uh, you know, someone else being hurt, say he's beating up mom or something like that. And that child is completely helpless. You know, he's got a, a four or five year old child, you know, dealing with a, a grown man or, or woman in that. I mean, they're completely defenseless. So, and the more that that happens, that if that's happening several times throughout the week, um, or even nightly, which is common in, with a, you know, say someone who is in their addiction, that starts to create that that chronic experience of needing to dissociate to to escape the, the this very scary scene that's happening, or this or the pain that is being inflicted on their little body, and so that's how it starts in childhood. And it's hard to imagine, but it's it's very realistic that a lot of times abuse does begin in infancy. Yes. So, yeah, so it can go. Definitely. For both my kids, that's exactly what happened. I mean, it totally began in infancy. I kind of feel like the one thing that you said in terms of when it's an unknown factor and you just never know when it's going to happen, how often it's going to happen, how to get away from it, how to really handle it. I think that that becomes, yeah. I mean, I'd, I, there are so many adults that wouldn't be able to handle some of the abuse that these children went through. And so I think that it's definitely understandable that they almost put it in a bubble for lack of a better word. This is the part of their personality, part of their psyche that witnessed this or felt this or saw this or experienced this. And we're going to hide this experience away in the rest of our brain. But with that takes that little bit of that personality of that part of their psyche along with it that kind of hides. I think that that's really understandable for children to go through that. Yes. And this is where I think we, when, when we get into the you know, people with the ID, it's almost unfair to say disorder. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because it, like, what an incredible mechanism of the mind to survive. And, Absolutely. You know, and, and, and heartbreaking that the mind has to, you know, be put under the, that, that Resort sort of to these techniques. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A little but, bit uh, of both. Yeah, absolutely. It is both. And so I think the the child's desire to survive is so strong. And so they, they will do what they need to do to get through the violence or, you know, through the sexual abuse and, 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 go, and just get back to something that feels normal. They can't wait to get to school in the morning because that's safe. Right. Absolutely. And so they work so resiliently and it's, it's in the power of the unconscious is, you know, and again, why I was so drawn to studying, you know, depth psychology is like our unconscious, the capacity to survive and what the unconscious is capable of is so incredible. In particular with DID, that is actually really only created within a certain time frame, correct? Yes. How how young do they have to be? Like what age would it be like, well, the abuse could still happen and they could experience some sort of dissociative disorder, but it's not going to create a DID situation. Right. I mean, I, I think... You know, certainly from infancy, and I want to—I want to say—and I could be off on in terms of time frame because you know, brains are different, right, in terms of mm-hmm. development and when they're able to create new identities to to deal with the trauma, and then when that ability stops. And okay. I would say I, I want to say up to like five or six, and that that might be different now in terms of. I'd actually—I think I read like seven to nine now. Is that some some are going up as high as seven to nine, but it still has to be absolutely not just a one-time event, more constant trauma that that occurs to Correct. make them question mm-hmm. everything essentially. And here's the, the other is when, especially when we're talking about uh, like ritual abuse or something like that, the, the abuser, the perpetrator is actually skilled at knowing how to create fragmentation and, (laughs) and the site. Yeah. It's very dark. And and that matters that they know exactly what to do, what to say, how to create those almost like hypnotic states at, at different ages to be able to create different parts now, I also read that like, because of this particular situation that you're talking about, but just other situations in general, alters can pretty much be just about anything. They don't have to necessarily be a little girl or a little boy or a grown woman or a grown man. Like some systems have a demon or an angel especially with the ritual abuse aspect. And some systems have even animals, a dog or a cat or something along those lines, whether it's that that's just what they identified with to be safe or that whoever their perpetrator was created that in them. This is what you are. This is who you are. And they were left with that piece of them in that state. That's what I've read. Yes. And that is correct. You can have inanimate objects or animals that can, you know, have their own memories, own experiences and holding their own emotions and think that it's, it's important for people to know that. that. And especially when we're talking about what demons or angels or animals, that, you know, knowing that that's just as real for them as, you know, like a alter who is a grown man or a little child. So, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was actually interesting for my daughter. My daughter has an alternate that she talks about. She talked about having a demon and she also talked about being a cat. 
And it was really, really damaging to her if you argued and said she wasn't a cat. And so we kind of had to learn. I mean, we didn't know what was going on at the time because it wasn't coming out as these are her alters stepping forward. It was just, I'm a cat. And she wears cat ears all the time. She wants to wear a cat tail all the time. Like, that's what she does. And it's like, okay. And you, you can, yeah, it can feel awkward and, and uncomfortable because you don't know what's going on. But at the end of the day, it's not about the person that didn't go through the trauma. It's about the person that did and trying to help them recover from it and feel as comfortable as possible and not ostracizing them for something that actually they really had no control over. They didn't control how this alternate personality came to be. They had no control over what it was. They didn't pick it. And if they picked it, it certainly wasn't with an intent of, I want to be weird. I just want to be unique. And what I'm picking, it's it was something that in that moment meant something to them in a way that helped them to deal with their trauma. And I think that discounting that is further damaging to people that have gone through this. Absolutely. And the thing that I want people to understand most about DID and when people ask me questions, how I really explain it is that DID is not literally real, right? It is, it is the imagination or it is the mind creating things. Psychologically, it is real and it has to be treated as such, that it is psychologically real for that person. When you approach it from that perspective or, or understand it from that, then it, it makes so much more sense. So, you know, for your daughter, to, to psychologically, is she a cat during that time? Yes. And that needs to be acknowledged. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that, unfortunately, we live in a little bit of a society that's I don't believe it unless I see it. Um, and I think that makes it just difficult for people that are going through mental health crises nowadays, because if I can't see it, you must not be struggling that hard. If I can't see it, this must not be real. You must not be going through it. And I feel like as a society, we have to absolutely get away from that mentality. We have to stop to think about of everything in our body. Our mind is the most powerful, amazing tool that we have that we do not understand at all. I mean, we understand obviously a lot of it, but it's like there's still so much more that we need to understand about what our brains are capable of doing. And I think like all of that, considering everything in, in, in regards to that, for mental health to get knocked the way it does is just tremendous to me. I feel like our society definitely has to change its thought process on that. You know, the, the change comes through starting these conversations. Uh, I mean, even 15, 20, 30 years ago, the conversation about DID, I mean, psychiatrists, psychologists that were, were trained that it was not real, that it was all a bunch of garbage and that there's no way that the mind could do that, that that was not even possible. So don't even dare, you know, acknowledge that diagnosis that it, it was not real. And I'm so grateful to be practicing and, and living in a time now where we do under, understand so much more and we can have these conversations with, and we weren't, aren't going to, you know, be met with a bunch of doctors saying like, no, you're wrong. That's not possible. And it's like, actually, no, absolutely. you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, <You> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And I would say to anybody out there who has been to that doctor that says you're wrong, uh, you just need to find another doctor. That's not, there are definitely people out there that are, are supportive 
and will acknowledge the journey that you're going through. And I think that of everything, picking any type of doctor, whether that be your primary care doctor or your therapist or anybody in that, you know, along those lines, picking someone that is supportive of your journey, whatever that journey may be, is probably the most important aspect of healing. Yes. Like I said, I feel so fortunate to, you know, be living in a time now where these conversations are invited and people are wanting to know more rather than just pathologizing or disregarding a person's experience because trauma comes in so many forms and impacts us in so many different ways, you know, and how we experience trauma. Like if, if we could, we could go through the same trauma and have completely different experiences of it. Absolutely. I think that people forget that. I think that there that's another <laughs> unfortunate aspect of our society today. <laughs> we have an awful lot of people who are like, well, I went, had to walk, you know, up a hill both ways, barefoot in the snow to school every day. And it's like, well, maybe you did. And maybe you were okay with that. Maybe you were comfortable with that. But this person over here who had to go through whatever journey they went through, it impacted them far more harshly. And I don't think that it means that they're weaker. I think it means that they're different and we're all different. And I think that the other aspect is we just don't know anybody else's journey. I don't care if they sit down and tell you what happened to them every single day. You don't know their journey. You still don't know how that impacted them, how that affected them, how that made them who they were, who they are. And I think that we have to just recognize that at some point that judging other people's journey when we don't know what it is or how it's impacted them, or even really truthfully and honestly, what we would do in the exact same situations, we don't know. We have to be graceful with them and allow that maybe they're doing the best they can. And on the opposite side of that, maybe you would do better if you were in the same situation. Maybe you would, but that is your best and that's not their best. They're doing their best. And this is what their best looks like. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, I think the more that we make room for understanding of that, that, you know, everyone is in a different part of their, their journey and their process and such an important part of therapy, you know, as is we have to meet that client where they are, you know, and not expect them to be 10 steps ahead or to like, it's, it, we have to meet them where they're at. Every session, it's, you know, one day what might look like this and then a week later or, you know, a couple of days later, they're, they're in a totally different place. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. where, where are we going to start from today? Absolutely. And the thing to know about DID or, you know, when, when you're working with someone's DID is they all need therapy. They're, you know, all the parts need therapy and they all need different things. So... <laughs> and I tell you what, so I don't even think we talked about this, but holy cow. So Dr. C is actually the clinical director at Iris Healing Center in Woodland Hills, California. And it's a, a residential treatment center. And this is where I met you. My son had to go there for his own dissociative identity disorder. At the time, he was a hot mess. He was a hot mess. He was having episodes of catatonic behavior where he would literally get lost in his mind. He was having a, a lot of switching between his alternates very frequently and episodes of literally just shutting down. And when you see people like that, when they do that, it doesn't matter what they're doing. They shut down and they will drop to the floor. And that's happened with both of my children 
and it can be scary. It's not quite the same as fainting. They don't necessarily pass out. They just drop and their body stops working for them. And so we had to go to see Iris. We found you through a network. It was amazing. (laughs) My son met you. And for the first time, you acknowledged, first of all, that he had DID. You were the first person to do that, first mental health person. And then you acknowledged his parts. You acknowledged his altars and said, if any of the altars want to speak, I would love to talk with them as well. And the level of support that my son felt and the amount of freedom genuinely that he got from that he called me up and it was just an amazing feeling for him. Mom, mom, this is what she did. She (laughs) said that if anybody else wanted to talk, they could talk too. And everybody was so excited to hear that. So I genuinely think that that is absolutely tremendously important that if you are in a DID situation, make sure that not only are people acknowledging that you have DID, but giving a voice to everyone inside you that wants to speak. Yes. And and sometimes we have to be creative. You know, some parts can be, you know, be very shy or not feel comfortable coming out front. And so we can say, can somebody bring that part of message, you know, or can they come kind of close enough to listen so that they can hear, you know, what I want to say to them. It's about getting very creative. And that's one of my favorite parts to the process of working with each new system is, is learning, you know, what works for you guys, what works over, you know, and what doesn't work. Absolutely. You know, what works. How does their system? Yeah. How does their system work? Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me. I joined a group on Facebook that's for dissociative identity disorders, a support group, and just to see how unique each system is and how it operates so differently. They're amazing. I think that to know that they got through whatever it is that they got through, I am always amazed when I see them. And I understand that for a lot of them, they're struggling. And I wish that we could do more to help them. But one of the things that I would genuinely say to anybody who has DID is, I think you're amazing. You are absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing. I don't care if you sit on your couch all day and you don't do anything else but that. Like, I don't care if that's the best that you're allowed to do that you're capable of doing right now. You are amazing. The way that your minds function, the way that your system functions, it's just... I have no other word. It's amazing. Just amazing. And I think people need to know that. Yes. <laughs> and I, you know, I feel very like welling up almost to hear you say that because it is amazing, right? That they are not just what they've survived through, but what they are capable of. And, you know, and getting to, when you get to know a person's system and each part is so special and unique and, and has, you know, that they have their job and they're very proud of the job that they get to do for the system and just acknowledging how special they are and and how important they are to the functioning of the system. A lot of times, you know, there is a lot of uh, self-esteem, the not feeling important or not feeling like they're they're doing enough or not feeling, you know, and so it's, it's helping build up each part to know that like, Hey, you are, you're amazing, right? You so special. And I'm so grateful that I get to know you. And for those who, if anybody out here is listening and you have DID and you're just not sure, first of all, obviously we would, we would always encourage you to go find the proper therapy and to get started on that part of your journey. But what Dr. C is referring to in terms of jobs would be, for example, like for my son's system, 
he has a gatekeeper and that is a person that like controls who comes forward and who doesn't to the best of his ability. Sometimes there's a little bit of a shock to the system and someone comes forward without that control being there. But he's the one who helps that when my son is in anxiety or emotional distress of any kind and somebody else needs to step forward. I'm amazed at how organized my son's system is now that I'm learning so much more about it. And I try and share that with him all the time. But, you know, they have a conversation of this is what's going on. Who needs to come forward? Who can handle this situation the best? Come on, come on, come on. Let's, you know, so they're working together as a system. They're absolutely working together. And another example would be my son has a lot of what we would refer to as littles, a lot of young children in his system. And so there's an older person or a couple of older people that take care of those littles and that help them throughout the day. Because the thing that I think we can't necessarily comprehend is that those personalities are there 24 seven. It's not like they only come forward when they're out, you know, fronting. It's there in that person's mind all the time. So at any moment, my son can speak to his alters. Sometimes some of them, some, some systems you can't, you might be able to speak to one, some, some systems you might not be aware that they're there, but for my son's particular system, he can speak to many of his alternates all the time. And so they're there. So they need to be able to be occupied and not just sit around and twiddle their thumbs 24 seven. And when they're little children, You have to have somebody else that has that job of taking care of them so that the whole system is working properly. And I think to me, that's the part that's amazing is like, you have this world inside their mind, a world that operates. And if you think that you get exhausted doing whatever it is that (laughs) you do in your day to day, whatever, imagine if you had a whole entire world inside your mind that you ran 24 seven and and what that would be like. And that's what these people that have dissociative identity disorder do. And they do it amazingly. Well, most of them do it, you know, amazingly well, some of them struggle, but that's just trying to figure out how to work your world, how to make it work. And I, and I would encourage you all to maybe look at that. I, I definitely don't have it, so I can't speak for that. But if you're struggling with it, that It's a world that you've created and that's not an easy task to make your world work smoothly. So take heart in that and know that hopefully you can get your world to work well within itself in the future. Yes. And that one of the things that I can add to that is that early on, the the idea of, of treatment for DID was to achieve total integration and you know, through time. And as, you know, p- clinicians have learned and, and, you know, clients have been able to share like, no, like that's not what I need. What we need is to learn how to all work together. That's what we need. We need to learn how to negotiate, how to compromise, how to help each other out, you know, and that's how you learn to, to function and kind of live a fulfilling life is when everyone's working together. It's when, you know, parts are struggling to, or they, or they're not even in, in one of the terms. They, gosh, I feel like we could do a whole nother hour, but I, <laughs> there's just so much to say here. So I'm so glad that you're doing this, um, having this podcast, but achieving co-consciousness, which is where, you know, the, the parts are, you know, aware of one another and able to communicate with one another is one of the first steps in achieving that ability to all work together. So yes. And once everybody's working together or if they are, you know, like, Hey, I don't like what so-and-so is doing. So I, you know, then it's like, okay, then let's go to the conference room. Let's figure it out. 
okay? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's have our own little therapy session with our own little group of people to talk about what's going on. Yes, yes. Another suggestion that I would throw out there for anybody who feels like maybe they they have DID or they know someone that that they're a family member, whom a friend, whomever. Um, one of the things that I did with my son at first was we put a little journal by his bed, and it was for whomever came out to sign and write whatever they wanted to say. It was for them to write because some alters want to share their story and some don't. They just want to be silent and want to be quiet, but. It actually became a really welcoming thing for the altars that my son had. And one of them, I remember actually even referring to it as a little guest book. And he was so excited that he got to sign the guest book. You know, it was my son's own personal guest book of all of his altars. And so I would encourage you that if you are struggling in this area and you want to know what's going on, that you can have people share their story. And not only that, maybe you have someone who's not essentially doing your best interests, not living a life when they come out, their life is creating chaos in yours. There might be a reason for that. Maybe they think that you're in danger when you're not. They think that something's going on that is a little bit different than what's actually going on. And if you give them an opportunity to speak their truth and to speak what's happening with them, then sometimes that can lead to at least you hopefully understanding each other better and potentially working better together. Yes, I back up all of that so, so much. And, and I, I think from your perspective, Nicole, like as, you know, as the parent, it, the work that you have done and the, and the, the role that you're playing in, in helping your children is so incredible because unfortunately the, the amount of times that I, you know, I work with a, a client who has DID and then I start a conversation with the parents if appropriate, there's, it's so difficult or, you know, it's, it's such a different conversation. There's often a lot of denial or just not even acknowledging what's going on with, with their child. And a lot of times it's an adult child. (laughs) Right. But, um, so, so you, you know, what you're doing and the work that you're putting in to understand and to help, I I thank you. Um, and I can't just say enough, like how much I appreciate what you're doing and it's, it really is just so profound. And so thank you. Thank you so much. That's Mm -hmm. so wonderful to hear. There are definitely days when it's like, Oh my word, how am I going to get through this? But you know, I, I feel like I think the thing with my son, at least I have discovered that I have so many more children than I ever thought I was going to have. Like it genuinely is. I love them all and I've learned all their names and we've given them all their names and they mean something to them and they come out and they know who I am and they know they're safe. And I think that that's so tremendously important to provide your children. Our children did not choose this path and we have to, as parents, love them the best way that we know how, give them the best support that we can, allow them to have the support that they need to heal. And obviously there's going to be times when your children either don't take advantage of that support, don't use it properly, aren't, uh, you know, something happens later on and they fall onto a different path that you can't completely support. There's always going to be potential for things to happen, but you just do the best that you can as a parent in giving them love and support in the best way that you know how always. And I think that not denying is a huge part of that. Don't deny what they went through. 
It might be completely uncomfortable. I have to acknowledge every day what my husband did to my children, what the man that I was married to at the time did to my children. I have to acknowledge that and be aware of that every day. Does it mean that I have to feel guilt for that, that I did something bad myself? No, but I still have to acknowledge the part that my husband played. And I have to acknowledge the damage that it did to my children. And I think that as parents, especially as parents of children that were sexually abused, we have to be willing to do that when it, when it was a parent, when it was a parent or a family member or whomever. Don't carry that guilt. And we'll talk about that in another episode. Definitely. Don't carry that guilt. It's not yours to carry. It's not. It's absolutely not yours to carry. But don't deny what happened either because that's not acceptable. It's just not. And it's not beneficial to anybody. But thank you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> of course. And I'm so glad that you talked about integration because I was going to ask you about that. I definitely think that I think that there are people sometimes with DID who are afraid to go to therapists because that is absolutely what used to be the answer was everyone has to integrate. And on the support group that I've seen on Facebook that I'm a part of, there are times when people shared stories of how their therapists have made them integrate. And it was such a bad result. So I would definitely say that that that's something that I agree with. If your system is working well, that's your system, man. And my son has fully admitted to me that he does not want to integrate. That, you know, if some of them choose to do that at some point, that's okay. But he walks around with an internal support system of lots and lots of people all the time. I'm not going to knock that for him. That's mm-hmm. something that he needs. And that's more than acceptable to me. It's about making sure that he's functional. And right now, what I would say is the things that are creating issues for him and making it that he's not as functional as he could be actually has nothing to do with his DID and everything to do with a lot of other pieces. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Dr. C, you've said we have so much more that we could potentially talk about. So what I would like to offer up to our listeners is that if you would like to have Dr. C on again for another conversation about DID and get a little bit more into it, then please, please feel free to contact us, comment on the episode link and let us know how you feel. And we will see what we can do about that. I think it's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're so welcome. And and again, I, I thank you for inviting me on and getting to get this conversation started. I think it's so important. And many people will, if not learn something, will benefit from the information that was shared here today. Once again, if you liked today's episode, let us know in the comment section or take a moment and fill out our contact us form on our website at www throughtheundertow.com. You can also email us at throughtheundertow at gmail.com. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, take a moment and click on the buy me a cup of coffee link on our website. All tips, donations are greatly appreciated. All right, that's it for this episode, guys. Take a moment to recognize that mental health issues are something to do our best to understand instead of ostracize. And don't forget to check out the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Disassociation. Also, know that you only have to take things one moment at a time. And remember, we're here to help you get through the undertow.